So there's conscious and unconscious bias. And I could actually define them at the same time because it is either something that we knowingly do or something that we subconsciously do mm-hmm. that indicates a preference towards a certain thing. Mm. So really simple definition. The reason I always say everyone has bias is because if I were to rattle down a list like cats or dogs, boys or girls, gun reform or gun rights. As I said, that list, your brain was probably going, yes, cats. Yes, boys. Yes. Well, like, right? No, dogs. <laughs> see, but see? Is gonna, yeah. <laughs> but the human brain categorizes things because it's how we make meaning. It's Absolutely. how we, you know, assimilate to different things. It's how we find connections with people. Like, that is literally what the brain is supposed to do scientifically. So it's not necessarily a good or bad thing. It's just understanding right. all of our brains do it. Now that I know that, what do I do with it? And the more I become aware, how do I grow around these biases? Do you see my pen? I got notes right here. Yeah, I'm looking to make it a little lighter. <laughs> Are we mutually aligned oh, right now? Oh, my goodness. Uh, there's, there's always two, two versions. <laughs> I mean, you're moving a little slow, but... Working I, really a- hard. <laughs> we will definitely talk about that later. <laughs> Love for work. Welcome to the Love Work Podcast. This is Jeff. And I'm Andre. Today... We have a really, really good interview. We have a great one. I'm so thankful that our friend got to be on the podcast with us. Yeah. So today we have Claudine Miles, and she is an educator and consultant and has worked with lots of big organizations, Teach for America, the CDC. She's been in 42 schools and even some big tech companies that we can't that talk about. We can't talk about, but they're too big of a deal. But you know them and she's worked with them. But we also just wanted to have a conversation with her as an educator in this idea of parenting and talking to our kids about racism. Over the last couple of years, I've had a chance to get to know her and her co-founder, Kimberly. They're amazing humans. And we've gotten to work with them through Plywood and they've taught me so many things along that journey. And I felt like we couldn't talk about the series of parenting and not talk about racism and bias. And it's such an important part of the conversation of today and conversations with our children that we all need to have. Yes. And we definitely also want to acknowledge that Jeff and I are both white and that we have this privilege as white people to have the option to have this conversation about race. For any non-white families and communities, this is a continuous conversation. And so we really want to address this as how important it is And that it's really just never too early to talk about race with your kids. Yeah. So as we get into it today, I want you to listen for three things. Mm -hmm. Number one, Dwayne Wade. Mm -hmm. Number two, the word colorblind. And number three, the white dads. Oh my goodness. This is a really good episode. It's important. We're going to define terms. We're just going to have like a real, just genuinely good conversation with an educator who is teaching us 
how important it is to have this conversation with your kids. And we are even going to give you a toolkit at the end of this that you can go and purchase as well that is really, really helpful for this conversation. So listen all the way through and we'll talk more at the end. And here we have Claudine Miles. So obviously we're married couple, white couple, talking about racism with you. And obviously this conversation is obviously rooted in privilege and we want to acknowledge that and also open up the dialogue. Um, well, also that as white people, we have like this option, right. right? To talk about racism and that is not an option that you have. That mm-hmm. is not an option that any non-white person has with their kids and with their family. So we want to acknowledge that right away off the bat and then also just say thank you for your work in this that you've mm-hmm. done for so many years. And we hope that it'll educate us, but also like our listeners today, for sure. Thank you guys for having me and making that acknowledgement. It means a lot. Today, we're going to talk about this in relation to parenting. I mean, you're a teacher. You, for years, have talked with kids on these topics. So let's start there. Like, what's the conversation happening right now with kids and racism? It seems like a more open conversation than the rest of the world. Is that fair to say? I think it kind of goes back to what you guys acknowledged earlier, right? So parents that are Black or parents that are of color have had these conversations with their children. Yes. Forever, like literally for decades. It's the things that you have to know to get through, to survive, to avoid negative interactions with police, literally to make it, right? And so it's not an option. It is your lived experience that there is a conversation at a certain age, almost like a coming of rights or it's right, a rites of passage. Have have, yeah. Whereas hmm. um, many families that aren't families of color, it's been an optional conversation, right? And so now, after the summer of 2020 and seeing the horrific death of George Floyd, I think that just activated so many mothers in particular. And it made it this topic that we can no longer avoid. We have to have it. We're still like leery, right, about how we have it. But there's this urgency to it that I haven't seen from a lot of white allies. And I appreciate that. But I think it is challenging for those families because it hasn't been had, because it's been potentially avoided in some families. And so it's even harder because if you haven't had the conversation, it feels like you're really out of practice. And how do I bring this up? And how do I broach this? Especially if the children are older, right? Mm -hmm. If your kids are younger and you've been having these conversations since like infancy and they were toddlers, then it's easier to approach versus, oh, I have a middle schooler and we have never talked explicitly about race. Mm. So I think the challenge is how do you do that in a way that's like safe for children, but is also equally urgent because a lot of times it is not young people of color that aren't having these conversations. It's actually the opposite. Mm. And then I also can imagine that some parents have fears about it. First of all, maybe their own inadequacies with it, like being uneducated enough themselves, number one. But then also maybe this idea that they might elicit fear in their children of things that maybe they also don't want them to be fearful. You've hit it on the head and you've articulated it well. Like, I'm a Black woman married to a Black man, <laughs> the Black son growing up in the South, and I'm trepidatious about having these conversations with my son. So I think it's really important to acknowledge that, like, parents are fearful. I'm also an expert in the field of DEIJ, and I'm still fearful. Why? Mm-hmm. Because when you have those conversations, you are 
in essence, encroaching on their innocence. And that's yeah. really wow. hard, right? So our kids oftentimes grow up believing that the world is just, that it's honoring what is right, that the good guys win. Right. And having every these, movie. Right. right. Yeah. And they get it from like a very early age. There's good guys and there's bad guys. And so to like break that worldview is really hard to speak to someone little and say, certain people may not like you because of the color of your skin. It troubles everything they see, right? And it paints everything they see. And it's a contradiction to what they've heard prior to. So it's it's mm-hmm. a hard conversation to have. It's loaded. It's emotional. And I think that fear of breaking that innocence is one piece of it. But then there's also the, how do I do it right? How do mm-hmm. I do it in a way that's not damaging? What happens when I don't feel like I'm the most educated person on this issue and I have a lot of things to learn? How do I do right by my child so that they're set up for more success? These are all real fears that I think every parent contends with. Like you heard me say, I'm a Black woman. But when George Floyd was murdered last summer, we had not talked to our son explicitly about police brutality. We definitely hadn't had the conversation yet of if you interact with police, here are the things you have to be really sure to do as a young Black man. He is now six, but last summer he was five. Five, Then you felt an urgency. Oh, after that incident, it was like you can't wait, unfortunately, because the world oftentimes looks at young Black children and adultifies them, right? So they're not allowed to be young Black children as long as others. They are seen as Mm -hmm. older, and therefore the consequences for them are different. And so while we did not explicitly go into the George Floyd murder, while we did not show him any of those videos, that is not developmentally appropriate, we did have the conversation of some people do not like Black people because of the color of their skin. Mm -hmm. And then we found like an age-appropriate way to introduce it. Praises be to Sesame Street because (laughs) they are so culturally relevant, but also age-appropriate. And they had really meaningful conversations about race. They're on YouTube. So please, parents, if you are struggling, that is a great way to open up the dialogue. And it's like an hour-long special. Right. There was a QA. and a So it was probably great from ages like three to seven, especially if you have haven't engaged in that conversation yet. And with our son, we've done a lot of like reading of books that are diverse, right? So we read a lot of books by Black authors. We read a lot of books about history and the past. So he's aware that there were enslaved Africans. He's aware that people at one point treated Black people differently, but he had no understanding that it's still happening. Hmm. And that was yeah. hard. Like we cried watching the That's Sesame Street the special. Part. Like, we yeah. all cried. Yeah. yeah, it was tough. Seems like beginning this conversation with your kids pointing to resources that just kind of open up the conversation naturally. Age appropriately. Yeah, that are age appropriately and then having conversation, right? That is literally half of the battle. Mm -hmm. It's starting it, getting over our own fear to do it. And then I think another thing that people don't realize is so influential in the lives of young children is their community, right? How Mm -hmm. are you engaging with diverse peers for your student or for your child, right? Are you putting them in activities, sports, clubs that have a diverse range of participants? Or does everyone in the club group community look just like your child? One of the experiences from my own childhood that I'm so grateful for is I grew up in like the melting pot of diversity. I'm from East Providence, Rhode Island. I went to school with literally almost every nationality, hearing multiple languages. And so it just taught me to be appreciative of how different and unique we all are. And I saw the gifts that different people brought to the table. And I think when we're not in community with others, it's easy to lean into the fears and like 
be hesitant to engage with certain people. But once you do, you build meaningful relationships and you're like, oh, I really like this person. I really like what they're about. And then it decreases the fear. It decreases the bias. It breaks stereotypes. So that's what we need more of. And that a lot of times comes at the hands of parents because kids are not usually making decisions about what teams they play for and what sports, right? That's on us. That's a parent's responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We kind of have a luxury of where we live and the diverse community we're a part of, which is thankful. But we've had conversations with people that live in the middle of Missouri or whatever. And it's like, they don't live in a diverse community at the core which in a lot of ways creates separation, right? It's a vacuum, right. So I think in those cases, because I've interestingly enough met people from places where they will tell you, like, you're the first person of color that I've met. And I'm like, really? Wow. (laughs) There are still places Um, like that. But then I've also, you know, conversely talked to the people that are of color that live in those spaces Mm. and we're sharing, like, I was the only person of color my entire K through 12 experience. And so I guess, like, the push is, how do you search for the diverse experiences? Like, it might not be easy, right? But is there a virtual experience that you could engage with your child so that they are meeting some of those folks from diverse backgrounds? With the way things are right now, like there's an online something for everything. There are literally Mm -hmm. online camps, right? Mm -hmm. And you're not limited to going to the camp that's down the street from you or that's in your county, right? You can Mm -hmm. actually say, well, I might live in a space that's not diverse, but I know this program in Atlanta would have a lot of diversity or this program out of New York or San Francisco. And we can actually, in a much more intentional way, kind of curate the experiences that our kids are having now. Whereas before you sign them up for the camp, you hope it's diverse. You're not really sure. You see the makeup and you're like, oh, guess not. I would say in this season, we have a lot more control than Mm -hmm. I think we might be realizing. And so maybe it's stretching and putting your child in an activity that they might not normally do, but that you know they might meet some diverse counterparts in. This year, I've processed a lot of things in this dialogue. And one of the processes I went through was, and still processing through, is this bias that I have. And I've thought a lot about where some of those things came from. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, it probably came from a heritage that I have, right? And the things that I heard from grandparents and older people in my family. That's how it works. It's passed down. We all have bias, to be fair, too. I always like to acknowledge that. It is not just white people that have bias. (laughs) People of color have bias, too. It's just often that it doesn't perpetuate systemic oppression in the same way. But bias is something that affects us all, and it's that awareness that helps us overcome it. Hmm. Let's do some, like, definition kind of of different words that we're using, I guess. So how about we just start with DEIJ because I think we've loosely just said it. So let's just start there and then we can go into like bias and systemic racism and a few other things. So DEIJ is an acronym for diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. Over the last 20 years, this field has existed, but it the acronyms have changed <laughs> like every couple right. of years. They might pull a letter, they might add a letter, but ultimately it's trying to get, you know, organizations and spaces to really be intentional about the people that they bring in, the people that they are serving and supporting, being inclusive and in that they are serving all different types of folks and not just the common groups, so to speak. 
but really ensuring that we're being inclusive of different genders, of different religions, all of those different things flow into it. And then the justice piece has really been added more recently as a result of a lack of justice or injustice. And so the push comes out of this idea that it's not enough to just educate folks on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Organizations really need to be pushing for justice, whether that's through policy reform or advocacy. But the justice is really the action of the work. Yeah. I know we touched on bias. What would you kind of define that as? And then, because like you said, there's, I think we all think about it definitely right away in the black-white conversation, but I think we could even talk about bias in financial, you know, ways we can talk about in social, you know, there's so many other ways that we look at bias too. So how would you talk about it or how do you talk about it with kids in those ways? So there's conscious and unconscious bias. And I could actually define them at the same time because it is either something that we knowingly do or something that we subconsciously do mm-hmm. that indicates a preference towards a certain thing. Mm. So really simple definition. The reason I always say everyone has bias is because if I were to rattle down a list like cats or dogs, boys or girls, gun reform or gun rights. As I said that list, your brain was probably going, yes, cats. Yes, boys. Yes, well, like, right? No, dogs. <laughs> see, but see? Is gonna, yeah. <laughs> but the human brain categorizes things because it's how we make meaning. It's Absolutely. how we, you know, assimilate to different things. It's how we find connections with people. Like, that is literally what the brain is supposed to do scientifically. So it's not necessarily a good or bad thing. It's just all understanding right. all of our brains do it. Now that I know that, what do I do with it? And the more I become aware, how do I grow around these biases. And like you said, Andre, it's not just this binary of black and white, right? Mm -hmm. It's married and single. It's gay and straight. It's pronouns or non-pronouns. Like there's bias about every and anything, Mm. um, which is why I like to do the cat dog and like the random examples that we still have bias around of like, but this is how I like to do it. It is very deep. Dogs. (laughs) (laughs) I like cats. But dogs. Right. Yeah. yeah. Dogs. For sure. <laughs> See? Uh, that's, that's a great example. really funny. I've done those quizzes. Have you seen those quizzes online? There's a really There's these good bias one quizzes. from uh, Harvard. Yes. That's yes, the one I the did. The implicit bias yes. assessment. And you can choose... Oh my gosh. I think there's a hundred categories. categories. Right. I mean, when I went, I thought I'd have like 10 categories. There was like hundreds. And as I was scrolling, I was like, what? Like, I can't even believe we're doing a quiz on this, you know? Like, why would anyone have a bias? Yes, exactly. It was very strange things. But then all of a sudden I was like, oh, like, if you think about it, wherever you've grown up, your environment that's been around you, the type of house or environment you have been living in gives you a bias. I mean, if you think about maybe even like the choice of house you make, the neighborhood you'll live in, where you'll move towards, based on your childhood. You right. Know? It's colored by the experiences that you've had, which yes. may have some bias. So let's talk about another definition, systemic racism. Systemic racism is just this notion that racism doesn't just live in the minds of people, right? It can actually affect systems largely. Why? Because people work in those systems. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm an individual with a racist idea, it is highly likely that it will paint and color my ability to do the work in whatever field I do. And there have been a multitude of studies that have showcased systemic racism in different fields and categories. We know there's disparities in the healthcare field where Black women giving birth are 
three to four times more likely to suffer death or infant mortality while giving Mm -hmm. birth. Andre mentioned housing, right? There's systemic Mm-hmm. Racism within the housing system in that redlining existed and people of color were literally barred from certain neighborhoods. Banking. Right. And within banking, certain mm-hmm. loans were dispensed to people of color. So it's interesting how sometimes it's really challenging to look at the systemic racism. But I think when we look at it at that level, we can actually empathize more with communities mm-hmm. that are oppressed and we can also better understand other points of views, right? So even when I think about the rights of LGBTQ individuals, there has been so much discrimination that over time it's created systemic challenges for that group of people. And until you look at it at a systemic level, then you fail to recognize the challenges that individuals go through. Like the privilege of getting married is so easy for a straight couple. I can go walk into a place and as long as you have the money, IDs, and a couple of documents, you can get married. Mm -hmm. Whereas less than 10 years ago and still in many states, it is not that easy. I have a great friend who's like, I literally had to travel over 20 hours to go to Canada just to get married. Mm -hmm. And that's an example, right, right, of ways in which the system isn't allowing her to engage in the same rights as everyone else. So I think when you look at how the systems work together, it also helps you to better understand, wow, there are many different avenues where getting to the same end looks different for different people. So this, I'm going to probably cry. <laughs> I'm just going to say it now. I think this was the hardest for me to talk about with my kids. I think it takes away the idea that anybody can do anything that they want. Mm the hardest part as a parent because we tell our kids that our goal is to guide and protect our children right and so as a parent you're constantly saying you can do and be anything that you want and what is really hard is when you start to study and really just do a little bit of research like even if you do surface level research you can see the ways in which systemic racism can potentially impact your children of color and it's heartbreaking this is why Many Black children don't have the privilege of opting out of that conversation. And it happens young. It's you have to work twice as hard to be seen as half as competent. You can't do these certain things in the classroom because when you do them, they'll be seen as this way. But if so-and-so does them, they'll be seen differently. Mm. When you confront a police officer or if they confront you, it is yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. Like I literally, from the age of like a single digit number, knew legally what police could ask me, which is where you're going and what's your address. And that I didn't have to share anything else, but that I had to be very respectful. And these are like lessons that my aunts and parents taught me so that I would be safe because my community had police that would pull over to the curb and stop us and ask us questions in ways that felt very scary as a young child. Not a, hey, how you doing? Where you going? Where you going? What are you Mm -hmm. doing? Very accusatory as if you were already doing something wrong. And so it's really challenging to confront that as a parent. This child is going to have a different experience simply because of how they look. And I can't do anything about that. That's Mm -hmm. the hardest part. Yes. Right? It's one thing to accept it, but it's another thing to know that unless you're physically there, you can't do anything. And then even still, sometimes you can't do anything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One of the things and related to having bias that I've kind of had to process with my children is the expectations of who they would become, which honestly gave me a better context for a lot of other conversations is dealing with the fact that, and and we wrote about this in our book of, 
I don't know the orientation of my children, but yet I had expectations probably. I know I had expectations. Feel like most parents right? do, right? Yeah. Just simply by what we were taught. Exactly. Like, and how, really look and forward to grandkids yeah. and the marriage traditionally. Yes. Yes. And right. Making so many assumptions in our mind about who they're going to be. Yeah. What advice would you give for a parent that's processing that? <sighs> it's funny because I've worked with so many students who have like over the years come out mm-hmm. to me before their parents. And that's a really challenging thing, but it's because the space felt like safer and like it's a, a layer removed and not as much judgment. So they feel safer with a teacher or a counselor in their school. That's the exact thing that none of us desire. No, it's the last thing you want to hear, but it's because there isn't a fear of disappointing Mrs. Miles, right? right? In the Mm. same, because I don't have those expectations for you. I can't not wait. Like, I'm not looking forward to meeting your kids in the same way that your parents are. Mm. I think, and this is really hard to do, but parents in general have to take a look at, am I projecting my goals, my ideals of success onto you, or am I allowing you as the child to define that. And I think that's hard because I know I have a bias of like, these are things I expect my son to do. But to what end, right? And at what point does it become overbearing and like overtly controlling and limiting to them? One person that I think does this so well and I like commend him and I'm like, you've done a lot of work around this is um, Dwayne Wade. And Mm -hmm. he has a daughter named Zariah who transitioned Mm -hmm. um, over the last couple of years. And He talks a lot about how when he first learned that his daughter, who was born male, wanted to transition, he talked about how he had to do so much self-work because it was really at the root. What does this mean for me? How are my friends, family, colleagues going to judge me in relation to this news? And through that like self-work, he realized a lot of it was like his own hangups and his own bias around what that transition would look like. So I think as parents, it's like, how do we do that work to confront what are the things that we are struggling with? I think it's important for every parent to consider that question. Well, what would I do if my child one day came to me and said, I don't feel comfortable in this skin. I think I might be of another gender or I know you might want me to date girls, but I'm actually very interested in boys or the opposite. Or you've raised me in this religion. And I actually don't agree with any of it. And I've been studying this religion, right? Because it's not just narrowed down to like gender or identity. But I think so many parents not only have children with expectations, but they also have like this forecast over what they envision their life to be. And then sometimes they can project unmet goals onto their children, right? So like, I didn't do these things. I really want this for my kid. Hmm. For example, maybe I didn't go to college. I really want this for my kid. But does my kid actually Hmm. want this? And I think it confronts parenting norms, right? The thought is, I know what's best because I'm the adult. I'm your parent. I love you. But there comes a certain age where they might know what's best for Hmm. them. And how do we limit them by assuming that there is only one right answer? Mm-hmm. So you've worked with a bunch of high schoolers, even in this past year, and talking about creating like these circles of anti-racism. What are the things you, you talk? Because I've, I've actually, as you were talking, I was thinking we've committed in our organization to be an anti-racist organization, which has a series of practices that we're trying to implement now. I'm like, what would an anti-racist family look like? You know, like in parenting look like. I'm curious where you're engaging on those topics with students. 
So I'll answer the first question because it's probably just a shorter answer, which is like, what does an anti-racist family look like or person or child? And being an anti-racist is really simple. I think sometimes folks make it more complicated than it is. But it's like speaking out when you see racist mess. Like If you see it, you speak to it. It's taking actual action. So it's not just saying like, oh, did you see this horrible thing about George Floyd or what's happening in this community? Like, what are you doing to affect change? Are you calling a senator? Are you calling a congressman? Are you donating? Are you enlightening people in your family when someone says something that could be perceived as racist? Are you taking a second to just slow the moment down? Hey, I'm really uncomfortable by that. Or, hey, what did you mean by that? Mm-hmm. Um, and put in the, the work back on the individual who has said the thing that mm-hmm. might be triggering and having them unpack it. I think that's the, the first question. The second one was like, what are we doing with children in general? And it's not shying away from the conversations. It seems so simple, but there are so many schools where people want to have these conversations with children because ultimately school is where a lot of socializing happens, but it's also where children get to engage with diverse folks, right? Right. The beauty of diversity is you get different ideas and different thoughts. And so what better place than school to have these types of conversations? And so in our product that we launched last year, the Anti-Racist Circle Kit, we provide like a script for people to actually have these conversations and kind of take the brain work out of it because they're hard enough, right? So each script, there's 12 of them. They have guided questions about specific topics and you can ask the questions in an open-ended way and you can share your answer. The students can share their answers and you just get this realization that our kids are already thinking about it. I don't understand why people are like, well, kids are not ready for these conversations. They're living it. It is their lived experience. I'll never forget. I had a 10-year-old that I was going into a classroom to observe and it was right after the shooting of Tamir Rice, who was a 12-year-old boy. And the 10-year-old said, Miss Miles, why do they keep killing us? So this assumption that young children aren't aware is really silly. We know mm-hmm. kids are nosy and perceptive, and they're going <laughs> to listen to the things the parents nosy. say and pick up snippets of news and follow that social media thing they shouldn't be looking at. So a lot of times they're aware, but they can't make a lot of sense of it or a lot of meaning from it because they don't have the language like, bias and microaggressions mm-hmm. and systemic racism. And so if we can teach students these terms earlier, and then they are armed with the language to call out certain behaviors, that's enabling them to be anti-racist. And so in that kit, those are the things we talk about. Discrimination, allyship, police brutality. There isn't really a topic that's off limits with children because it's oftentimes adults that try to impose those limits. Of like, they can't talk about this. Well, why not? So I'm not even going to ask you what the age range is for this kit because you just heard it. You should be talking about it now. You should be talking about it as young as possible. Thankfully, we have artists in our culture that are starting to bring it to light that can cause us like my daughter and Andre, they don't really love Marvel. But we watch it they for watch you. Some, but like the latest series on Disney with Falcon, it was prevalent conversation throughout the whole thing. And it was like, okay, so I'm watching this series with my nine-year-old. Like, we can just have casual conversation. Casual conversation. Right. Like, this doesn't need to be everyone sit down at the same time at the dinner table. We're silent. Like, it should just be part of the norm. Yeah, pulled over by the police. Right. And you can discuss that. Like, what did you think about that? Even a superhero. (laughs) Let's talk about that. (laughs) Right. 
we don't always have to pull like these scary things from the headlines either. Yeah. I think it's really important to be cognizant of like age appropriateness. You heard me share that like, yes, I knew last summer I need to talk about this with my son, but no, I did not show him the images of right. George was, Floyd, no, right? It's horrific. not age appropriate. No. But the conversations can still be had. And I think the more you can make it an everyday practice, like after watching Falcon or right. during watching Falcon, the more kids become normalized around the conversations. And if you notice, it's more often than not adults who are afraid of having these conversations. Yes. Like kids don't really shy away from race conversations. They have them a lot. Like, mommy, so-and-so looks different. Why? Like they'll just yes, ask. Immediately. They're curious. Exactly. Now, okay, I hear this a lot and I just, I really need you to help me get this word yeah. out of the dialogue that we're colorblind. And let's just talk about a little bit about how that is more problematic. Yeah. So it's funny because I feel like it was like, I don't know when that word was born, but I heard I it so much growing up. Am like I, like maybe 80s? the 80s? I right. think, I'm like, it has to be an 80s term. I think we're on the same track. Um, but, but now right. it's yeah. so problematic, right? Okay. And people say it with the best of intentions, right? Like They're I so don't sweet. see color. They're so sweet. I'm colorblind. <laughs> like your intent is irrelevant. The statement in and of itself is really toxic because what you were saying is, I don't see you. Yes. You're uncomfortable by my color. I'm not uncomfortable. I'm a wonderful Black woman. I'm really proud of that, as should someone who is of Italian heritage or Irish heritage. Like, there's nothing wrong with being proud of who you are, your culture, your nationality. And I think when people try to erase that, it is really harmful. And that's what I hear when I hear, I don't see color. No, I want you to see my color. I want you to acknowledge it. And there is no shame in that. But the colorblind statement erases my opportunity to bring my full identity. Mm. And so for folks that are listening, if that's language that you've used, it's okay. So have so many others. But go ahead and remove that from your vocabulary from this point forward. People of color don't appreciate hearing that. We find it a little offensive because you're erasing who we are, and we so want to be seen and heard and validated for our experiences. So it's okay to say, oh, so-and-so's teacher who happens to be Black. There's nothing wrong with that. Like, mm -hmm. it's okay to identify people by what you see and knowing that for people who have been oppressed for so long, we want to determine what we are called, right? And so listening to those voices and saying, oh, they don't like this. Well, let me be mindful and adjust this thing because um, it really is that simple. And I believe the people who say that, most of them have good intentions, but they are missing the mark and not understanding from the people they want to ultimately be in a relationship with. Well, that's not something that we appreciate. Right. And then how do you hmm. also like talk about that with your kids in a way that like you're not saying, you know, I don't want you to think about color or color blindness, but you're saying... I want you to look at everybody in their beauty and their gifts and their and appreciate it. Like that's kind of what you're trying to teach the saying, kids, right. right? You're trying to teach them more, not just like wash all the color, but look at it all. Acknowledge it. Acknowledge it and then see the beauty in every different shade. I think you do that by like modeling that, right? So like reading books intentionally about people that don't look like you. The library is a great resource. I literally go to the library with my son every week and I'm looking at his books. I'm like, okay, this is great. We've got 10 Marvel books. That's awesome. But <laughs> I'm, mommy's going to put a few books in here that we need to look at. And so we'll read things about children that don't look like us, mm -hmm. children who are wearing burqas and children who are wearing hijabs and 
getting him to understand like, yes, we believe these things, but there are so many other belief systems and they're not so much right or wrong. They're just different. So we read about Hinduism. We read about kids in school in China. We read about a variety of things and it gives him a better worldview. And then we also try to incorporate that into what he's watching, what he's learning, what he's being exposed to. If you don't want your child to grow up in this vacuum and only seeing, right, these two shades or this binary, it's on us to expose them to that. It kind of goes back to like, how can we put them into diverse experiences and situations and being intentional? Because our neighborhoods are largely where our kids socialize. But if we know that schema, that existence looks exactly like us and there is no nuance in it, then I would say it's time to push yourself a little and say, well, what other experience can I give them so that the first time they engage with a person of color is not college mm. or after college. And I told you, I've met the people like that. And it's funny because the person was from Missouri, uh, but she was amazing. <laughs> I worked with her. It was like my first job. And she literally said, like, you are the first black person I met. And I really like you. I was like, well, good. I like you, too. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's on us to expose them to certain things. All they know is to play and enjoy what they see around them. So what are we putting around them and how yeah. are we making their play more diverse? Yeah. So I think one of the hardest people to change in this conversation is the white dad. I'm talking about myself. It seems like that audience is the slowest to the conversation. And I'm trying to think about the listeners that we have and how to invite them in. I think it's a real... Because I think you're right. I think a lot of like moms and women have seen these different situations and for us as mothers, we're like, just it breaks our heart. Empathy. It, acti- it activates all that like maternal protective instinct. mama yeah. instinct that we're like, oh, hell no, that should never happen to any child. You know, for some reason. If you look at it from a male versus female perspective, like, yeah, I mean, the man of the house likes it this way. There's a patriarchy that exists that they want to. Sustained. Yes, yeah, sustained. It's it's easier it's that for you. it works. Right. People don't right. want to give it's up really power working if they're winning. For you. Right. Yeah. Why would I want to give I'm winning. I'm good with this. And I also think though that there's also a large segment of that same population that believes they want things to be different, but they're struggling to walk fully into it. And when I say they, I mean we. Right. No, it's such a big, heavy question, right? How do white dads yeah, move past there. and get closer? To an anti-racist mindset, right? And I think... Yes, that's the question I'm asking. Yeah. 100%. Step one in any anti-racist work is literally looking at yourself, growing in your self-awareness. So being an anti-racist is not like about going around and telling everyone else where they are. It's about, first of all, understanding really thoroughly, where are you? What are your biases? What are your triggers? What are the things that really unearth you and make you uncomfortable. And it's being able to articulate it and then like working to reduce that bias over time. And how do you do that? You read, you learn, you educate yourself, you watch videos, you listen to people that don't look like you. You better understand where they are coming from. And I think many white men have friend groups that look just like them. Sure. Right? Mm -hmm. And so, and read books by other white men. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and then watch. watch shows by other white men and then watch news by. <laughs> you see the problem? Yeah. You're living in a vacuum. Mm. Yes. And so you're missing these beautiful, diverse thoughts and experiences from other people that don't look like you. And so if you never hear the ideas of others, well, then everything's fine. And I'm winning over here. Why do I want to change? Mm-hmm. But when that white dad happens to have a multi ethnic child 
or happens to adopt a child of a different race, Mm. you suddenly realize really quickly, like, wait, wait, wait. (laughs) This now affects me. It is personal. And so the question for a lot of white dads is, why does it have to be personal for you to give a damn? And that's harsh, but I'm not here to dance around it. And Mm. I say that with so much love because that's just who I am at our core. But this matters so deeply for so many people. And it can't simply be, I care about these people because they look like me. It has to like extend beyond that for us as a country to do a lot of healing. Mm. And it starts with, like I said, understanding your own biases and educating yourself to grow out of them because we all have them. But then it's also being in community with others. One of the biggest ways, and it's so funny, like, have you ever watched those shows where like, this person used to be a part of the KKK, but now they do this justice work. And you're like, whoa, how did they go from A to B? And a lot of times it starts with being in proximity with people that don't look like you because it's called counter-bias stereotyping. So Hmm. you're literally, you have this bias against certain people. I'm just going to use black, white for this example. But if there is a white male that happens to have bias against black men or racist ideas about black men, They will literally put them in close proximity to a Black man. Why? Because they will see, oh, this isn't the stereotype that I had in my mind about this person. And then over time, through developing a relationship, you actually realize, like, I value and appreciate this person. And maybe what I learned was wrong. But it's not until you have that type of experience that you can kind of see things on the other side. And so as we're talking about putting kids in unique experiences, you know, the call to action for white men is like, How are you putting yourself in diverse experiences? Mm. How are you ensuring that you're engaging with the people that don't look like you? And sometimes that takes effort. That's where the anti-racism comes in. It's action, right? So when you're going out to play golf, are you calling up the person that maybe you normally wouldn't invite, but you do this time because you are really trying to be in relationship with others? When you're having the cookout at the house, are you only inviting people that look like you? Are you trying to intentionally be in community with others? Like the only way that we learn that people are just like us is by being around them. I think that's like the privilege that I had in growing up in a really diverse space. Like I had friends that looked like every shade of everything and we had sleepovers and our parents knew each other and we went out to eat together. And so though I saw the color of my friend from Egypt and my friend from Haiti and my Portuguese friend and my Italian friend, we also understood like all these great things that we uniquely had because of who we were. Mm. So it wasn't seen as like a negative or a slight. It was a, it was an asset. It reminds me, I, I went into prison one time. It was part of this entrepreneurship program in a prison and they did an experiment. It's just like what you were kind of explaining where all the people that were there to work on the business plans that came from the outside were on one side and all the inmates were on the other side. They would ask these questions and whoever you know, if you were, if it was a yes or no, you would come to the middle. And honestly, everyone there, the answers were pretty in unison. Everyone had had the same answers. And it was just like, it started you realizing, wow, I am not different than these other people. So it's, it's seeing the human in people mm-hmm. while not ignoring their identity. Um, And the only way we get out of our comfort zones is by literally pushing outside of them. And it's uncomfortable. Like, we might not like it. But if it means a better experience for your child growing up in a world that is growing more diverse every day, then it's going to be really important. I think about how the demographics of our country have changed just in the last 20 years, and they're going to continue to change in the next 20 and the next 20. And our kids are going to grow up with so many different shades of beautiful people. Are we equipping them to be successful in that world or are we teaching them 
that only their background, their ethnicity, their religion, their culture, whatever identifiers we're talking about, those are the only people that matter. Because if that's what we are teaching our children, they are setting them up to ultimately not be as successful because the world isn't going to look just like you. Your job that you walk into isn't going to reflect exactly what you see in your household or in your family. So as we grow to change, I think it's just important to adjust what we're doing with our kids. Also, what we've done historically hasn't been working out very well. That's why we're kind of here, right? Mm-hmm. So avoiding race conversations or just passing down stereotypes and fears about different types of people that are different from you, it hasn't lent itself well in this space. We are one of the few countries that has a really serious problem around gun violence, right? And a lot of times those crimes are targeted towards certain types of people. And we want to raise healthy and whole children who live wonderful and complete lives. And we can't do that if we're not teaching them how to be in community with people that don't look like them. We're doing a disservice to them if we don't teach them that part. And now it's time for the breakdown. Pretty much everything I wrote notes on here. I have not seen the Sesame Street episode. Oh. We mm-hmm. definitely have to watch that with our kids. Yeah. Yeah. That's one thing. That's an action item that we have. Yes, I agree. And also we talked about that there is an anti-racist circle kit that their team has developed. They are prompts in conversations to have with kids. And again, you can find that at WeRestoreMore.com. We have two kids. One is white, one is black. And we now see the world very differently because Mm -hmm. of that. As she said, like, it did become real personal to us with a black child. Yeah. But to her point of why does it have to be personal for us to care and for us to make changes? What a great um, challenge. And I think that was a big challenge to me. That challenges me in a lot of other areas. There's a lot of other conflicts happening today and difficulties in our world today that don't affect me where I am right now, but I think it should matter and we should look at our bias in all those categories. Yeah. And I think both of our kids have caused me to evaluate my own bias in very different ways, but I think it's a really interesting way to engage this broader conversation is to look at the biases you have and expectations on your kids. And it could start a lot of conversations in your relationship. This is something, if you listen to it, by yourself, I do think it would be really important to share this with your partner. Mm-hmm. I think having dialogue together and with your kids could it could be really important for you and your whole family. I hope that your own children, your own experiences with people that don't look like you or don't have the same worldview as you can also push you into learning and growing as well. Yeah. Well, hopefully this is an encouragement for you today. Again, go to WeRestoreMore.com and get that anti-racist circle kit. Thank you, Claudine, for joining us today. And this is another incredible episode of Love or Work. recorded by Matt Owen for Soul Graffiti Productions.